Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I thank you for listening, I hope that you enjoy the review that you're about to hear. I do encourage you to also check out my website Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net for about 4,000 plus of my written reviews. And also check out my other companion podcast covering new films that are currently out in theaters called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Just remember that Quipster is spelled with a W and you'll find it. Today, of course, I'm going to be covering the second of the Superman films. Superman 2 came out in 1980, at least technically it came out in 1980. It was released in the December of that year in Australia and a couple of other places. However, in the United States, it was not released until July of 1981, so well after the debut in other parts of the world. Some people even consider it a 1981 film for that fact. It's a PG-rated film. It does have some violence. The runtime is two hours and seven minutes. Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder return as Superman and Lois Lane, respectively. Terrence Stamp takes more of a role here than he did in the first film, which was a very brief appearance. Gene Hackman returns as Lex Luthor. Sarah Douglas, Jackie Cooper, Jack O'Halloran, Susanna York, Valerie Perrine, and Ned Beatty also appear in the film. The screenplay is credited to Mario Puzo, although it was basically completely rewritten by the Newmans, David and Leslie. And the director here is Richard Lester, although a good portion of it, maybe about 20% of the theatrical release, was directed by Richard Donner well before the production had wrapped. For reasons uh, I guess I'll get into right now, Richard Lester here is the replacement. Richard Donner had grown increasingly disgruntled with having to butt heads with the Salkins, who were the producers of Superman films. About three quarters of Superman 2 had already been directed by Richard Donner, and so they were basically on the road to completing that project. But Lester was brought in here because of those creative differences between Donner, who wanted to continue on what he was doing with the first Superman film, and the Salkins, who wanted to make more of a camp comedy with the material. Lester agreed to do the film on the condition that he be paid some of the money that he was owed and he sued for from the Salkin-produced Musketeers films. He directed The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. He was replacing Guy Hamilton as the top choice to be the replacement for Donner, which coincidentally Donner was the replacement for Guy Hamilton, who did not direct the Superman films because it was going to be filmed predominantly in England at Pinewood Studios and he had some tax issues that he didn't want to pay for there and so he wasn't really keen on doing it but because of all of this uh, direction juggling you had two different visions two different ideas competing for screen time some of the quality story that helped the first film in the series from 1978 that gained a lot of credibility that's tossed by the wayside to some extent in this attempt to reduce a lot of Superman 2's action to crowd-pleasing confrontations. And I think that the main problem here is that the backbone of what made Superman, the movie, so good, meaning the storytelling, is greatly diminished for this sequel. And in its place is filler that the producers, the Salkins, perceived of as more engaging with the crowd. And the result is a pretty semi-silly follow-up that scores a lot of its points off of the momentum of its predecessor and a few more personal moments that I think other people respond to. Now, much of the plot of Superman 2 stems directly from the first film. If you haven't seen it in some time, though, don't worry. There's a lengthy montage recap of the events from Superman the movie during the opening credits, so it's a bit of a refresher. They tended to do that back then because the home video market really did not exist for most people at that time. As far as the plot goes, three Kryptonian villains... They were sentenced to an eternity of punishment in the Phantom Zone, as you saw at the beginning of Superman. 
their only form of release could come through the force of a nuclear blast. And wouldn't you know it, Superman just so happens to be flinging a nuclear bomb in their vicinity in the events of Superman 2. The shockwaves end up hatching the trio. Apparently the Phantom Zone has not aged them since the events of the first film. And the trio make their way to Earth to live as ruthless gods over humanity because the yellow sun gives them virtually unlimited powers, it seems. And only Superman is strong enough to save the people of the Earth, but he's completely oblivious to the events because he's cavorting with his main squeeze, Lois, at the Fortress of Solitude at the time. However, there's this catch that bars the immediate union of Lois and Clark for them to be together. Superman has to give up all of his powers and become a mortal person just like everybody else. And for the sake of love, Superman makes a sacrifice. But now the only obstacle to world domination for the trio of Kryptonians has been removed. And the world cries out desperately for a missing Superman to save the day, except to no avail. Of course, there's more to the story than that. I'm not going to get into all of the plot machinations because that is part of the surprise of the film. Although Superman 2 mostly receives positive reviews, and I'm going to give it one here today as well, I think there are quite a number of people that proclaim this as superior to the first entry. I am not in that camp. I find much of the action, the humor, the romance is handled here in too ham-handed a fashion a good deal of the time. So while I'm very entertained by Superman 2, I do consider it an inferior product to Superman, which I thought was much more substantial in what it was trying to do. This one is very campy, and so I'm in the Superman 1 camp, not Superman 2. And speaking of camp, that was the source of much of the consternation between director Donner and the Salkins because the Salkins wanted to make the film camp comedies primarily completely at odds with the more serious-minded vision that Donner had been envisioning from Puzo's original treatment. Donner left unceremoniously, basically fired. He was replaced by Richard Lester and Lester was told to reshoot many of the scenes, not only to earn credit for himself as the director of the film, he needed to shoot at least 50% of the used footage to get a sole director's credit while Donner didn't even want to share in the credit at all. But Lester was also told and expected to make them funnier in tone. But also unfortunate for the film, Donner's departure did not please many of the cast and crew involved. Gene Hackman, the film's most marketable name, with Marlon Brando not allowing his footage to be used without considerable compensation in the form of a sizable percentage of the box office of Superman 2, Hackman refused to participate in the reshoots. That diminished some of the screen time that they were intending because Donner was the director of all of the footage that was used of Gene Hackman. They had to force in a body double for Hackman to awkwardly appear in Superman 2. Also, John Williams did not return. He was working hard on the scores for The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark during that time. And his friend Ken Thorne ended up filling in, not that you would know it, because much of the score is a regurgitation of many of the pieces that John Williams had made for the original Superman, but he allowed them to use or reuse them with his blessing. The more diegetic soundtrack is very curious as it's used here. For instance, average white bands, uh, funk jazz number pick up the pieces. It's improbably being played as the Kryptonian baddies invade East Houston, which is this small town in Idaho that they're confusing for the actual Houston. In fact, they confused Houston as the name of the planet Earth. More out-of-place funk jazz riffs are heard on the radio at the truck stop diner in, I presume, Canada, in which a powerless Clark Kent gets his comeuppance when trying to challenge this bully who has taken a seat at the counter and starts hitting on Lois. 
Again, average white bands pick up the pieces is shown in the final scene of the film, this revisit to the diner where Superman does something that would be completely out of character, which is to revenge and pummel this powerless human man, even though he's a bully and probably deserves it. Some Superman fans think that that's not something Superman would or should ever do. If you're ever looking for an example of a movie that's worth seeing for one key scene alone, I would say Superman 2 is that movie because right at the heart of the film is a battle in Metropolis between our hero and General Zod and his cronies and it uses a set at Pinewood Studios in England that was meticulously reconstructing a portion of New York's 42nd Street. I know this is set in Metropolis, but basically it's New York. You see all of the landmarks. You see 42nd Street. You see the Empire State Building. And although that scene does usher in some blatant product placement, you have Coca-Cola, you have Marlboro, very prominently placed here. In fact, one of many shots of Marlboro, the cigarette company brand, Philip Morris paid quite handsomely for the placement of Marlboro products throughout the course of the film, including turning Lois Lane into a smoker, chain smoker, really. As a byproduct of that product placement, there actually was a congressional hearing that took place on the allowability of cigarettes and hard liquor, such as Cuddy Sark also gets a little bit of a placement here to place their products as advertisements in mainstream Hollywood movies. That has continued, although greatly diminished over the years. This scene alone, the showdown between Superman and the trio, is a show-stopping, pulse-pounding spectacle. It does make almost every trite joke and wince-inducing line from the hour that precedes it, and in some cases during it, forgotten for a lot of people. The scene is also so strong that the film coasts to the finish line in a pretty exciting fashion. I would say the feeblest element of Superman 2, and why I'm not as high on it as other people are, at least in the theatrical version of it, is the god-awful juvenile humor that's sprinkled throughout. The first film kept a lot of these scenes secluded to Lex Luthor, appearances alone, but this film has a campiness that sometimes feels all-encompassing. Even the cataclysmic Metropolis showdown that I talked about is full of some cornball shtick. You have two instances of a man staying on a payphone that he's using despite being blown away by Zod's super breath. You also have the city banding together to try to take down the villains themselves, which is absurd, but, you know, it's still within the realm of possibility. But you have one man claiming, yeah, I know Judo, like he's going to take these guys on, despite the fact that they're completely destroying the city. But you have to give the people of Metropolis credit for being a quite hearty bunch. Some of them continue to eat and to work while all of this is going on in front of their stores. And also to continue on talking on the phone, not to be even dismayed by the fact that uh, basically gods are battling in their midst. Metropolis people do not mess with them. They will not quit. There's also the romance between Lois and Clark that's a little contrived. It offers a few chuckles on an unintentional level. Although the more obvious attempts at laughs, such as Clark acting like a total klutz, slapstick style, those are the moments that don't manage to work as well comedically. Superman 2 also has trouble in the sense department. It is something that's not always plausible. Some of that is in large part due to large chunks of the film being already completed by Richard Donner at the time that Lester took over as director. So it really is a patchwork that is put together here. Lester also did not revere the mythos of Superman to the extent of Donner. And that's primarily because Richard Lester had been mostly unfamiliar with Superman as a character or even as a comic book, which he had never read before he took on the work of the film. So he did not have the same goals in mind of Donner. And in addition, all of the scenes with Marlon Brando had to be jettisoned. They replaced Brando with Susanna York as Superman's mother, Lara. 
causing the Christianity-based story arc of the powerful father and his righteous only son. That got derailed, and key moments of the plot were left unexplained, the most notable of which is how Superman ends up getting his powers back, something to do with the green shard. The original take of this film, which Donner directed, had Brando or his character Jor-El, or really his remaining essence of Jor-El, because Jor-El died in the first film, you know, Superman was basically going to be touching Jor-El's essence, and that would imbue him back with the equivalent of God's grace with godlike powers and effectively ending Jor-El's existence, his AI existence, I guess, as a sacrifice to his son. There are a few other head scratchers. John Ratzenberger, who played a bit part as first controller for the Navy in the 1978 version of Superman. He must be in high demand, at least that character among government agencies, because he also appears in Superman 2 as controller number one, this time for NASA. Miss Tessmacher is back in Lex's employ, despite freeing Superman and foiling the grand plans of Lex in the first film, to the point where, depending on which cut of Superman you watch, Lex decides to feed her to his babies or beasts that we don't get to see. She was hung by a rope in order to basically be killed by Lex, although Superman ends up saving her. She's back. You would think that she would not, after Lex almost kills her mother and almost kills her, want to work for this guy. I guess he must be offering her a lot of benefits. I don't see what benefit it is for Lex to keep her around because she's most likely to be on Superman's side. Superman also seems to have additional powers that were not originally introduced in the first film, and those include the ability to teleport, he has a kiss that causes amnesia, and perhaps the most egregious of this, I was trying to understand exactly what was going on there, and I even asked the people on Twitter to, to try to explain this to me, who are a little bit more Superman savvy than I am, he spontaneously produces and throws his Superman insignia, the S, he seems to pull another S out of his armpit, and then he throws it in the form of this giant cellophane wrapper still in the insignia to try to take on Non, one of the uh, Kryptonians, and uh, it ends up dissolving. I guess you could argue that this is one of the defense mechanisms of the Fortress of Solitude to create all of these illusions, but I don't know. It's a weird scene. It doesn't really work. It kind of takes you out of the moment. Meanwhile, the Kryptonians, who are absolutely new to their powers, but they end up learning about them very quickly. They're sufficiently skilled enough, for instance, as they're flying over Mount Rushmore to reshape Mount Rushmore in their image from the presidents with a few laser shots. Also, you know, Superman knows English because he grew up on Earth. However, there's no explanation whatsoever as to why the unholy trinity of Krypton, the trio of Kryptonians, would speak English. I realized that the Kryptonians spoke English in the first film, at least as we saw them, but we are supposed to go with it because we know that it's being translated for our benefit, at least we presume so. There's little thought really placed to why the Kryptonians would speak English and do so with British accents as they come to Earth. And lastly, it was established already in the first Superman film that Superman does not, cannot lie, although he is the person who says that, so if he can lie, I guess that was a lie. But if you go with the presumption that he cannot lie, you have to really labor to argue that what he says at the end of this film to Zod and company, as well as to Lex Luthor, which is this kind of gambit that he employs, constitutes some form of truth. Despite all of this, I know I'm nitpicking, I'm going overboard perhaps in some of the criticisms that I have, but the reason why I'm doing that is because Superman 2 is such an enjoyable movie as a piece of entertainment compared to Superman, the original film, which was probably to some people less entertaining, but was what much more, I think, respectable in what it was trying to do from a story standpoint. 
Superman 2, to me, is a bit sloppy. You have characters like Lois Lane. They look markedly different between the footage that was shot by Donner and Lester's new takes. You have overly campy moments here that take you out of the moment. You know, this is somewhat nonsensical stuff. This is mainly recommendable because of some good performances here. I really do think that Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder are delivering some of their best work in the series. Some pretty good action set pieces there. Really nifty production design and some special effects during the long battle and its climax that are pretty good. They're a little dated by today's standards, but they were definitely very good for its era. But as far as Superman the series, the death knell for the entire series, it starts to become evident here because it tries just so hard to be a comedy that it does become difficult to take some of the drama and the action as weighty as it is supposed to be. So it's definitely worth a watch if you're a fan of the first film. I do think that it's highly recommendable that you continue to watch here because it's a much more fun film. A lot of the elements that I think that you really come to know and appreciate, enjoy, and savor from the first film start to become missing here. It kind of reminds me to some extent of the difference between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom kind of done around the same era. The first film definitely took its time to kind of build the plot and to get you involved before all of the action took place. The second film was much more emphasis on the action that people were responding to in the first film. Nevertheless, I do think that as a piece of entertainment, it works well. And I think that beyond just the entertainment, some of the scenes that Donner's original vision still captured, those had not been gutted altogether. Those work really well in terms of keeping the backbone of respectability for Superman 2 intact. So I'm going to give Superman 2 three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that it's recommended if you're a fan of the Superman films. Generally, the first film, if you're a fan of the first Superman, I highly recommend you continue on with this follow-up. You may not like it as much, but chances are you're going to like it enough to consider it time well spent. But now this was followed up with Superman 3. Superman 3, by the way, will be my very next film and featuring Richard Pryor will be our next film. Before I do go today, I do want to mention though, because a lot of people know about this, especially if you're a fan of Superman 2, that there was a repackaged version of the Superman 2 film done and it was released on home video on DVD years later by Richard Donner. A lot of his excised footage had been found and he and the screenwriter Tom Mankiewicz went in and they repackaged all of that together. It, can, it includes a lot of that excise footage that he had shot that was not used for the film. Several outtakes are used to kind of patch things together. And even some of Richard Lester's material uh, is used in order to try to keep the semblance of story intact. That is called Superman 2, The Richard Donner Cut. If you're a huge fan of the Superman films, I highly recommend seeking Superman 2, The Richard Donner Cut out. I actually think it's a better film from a story and character standpoint than the theatrical version of Superman 2, even though it's kind of a patchwork in itself. And it had to be because there really wasn't enough footage that was done by Donner. Like I said, he only completed three quarters of the movie. So, you know, still is a really interesting take on where Donner was going to go with the film. So I highly recommend looking for that one if you're a fan of the Superman series. Until next time, thanks everyone for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the review, even though I kind of piled on some of the criticisms here. I really do enjoy Superman 2, don't get me wrong. But uh, it's going to be a little bit of a different take as we proceed forward with Superman 3 here for reasons that will become very obvious as I get into the review for that next week. But I do hope that you'll join me for that on Around the World in 80s Movies. Thank you.